Hey guys, it's Eric from Brain and Body Health, and today we're talking with Scott Wustenberg from Optimal Life Chiropractic in Queensland. Uh, Scotty's man, today we're going through this. So, this is part two in a series of podcasts that we're talking about uh, in terms of how to understand your, um, like a standard blood test. Because uh, it's really important that sometimes you get a blood test and some of these levels, they might not be outside of the range, but they could be on the low side and that could have an impact on your health. And you just need to understand what it all means so that you can ask the right questions of your GP uh, and get pointed in the right directions so that we can all live a healthier life. Um, so uh, at the start, we have a good ramble. Scotty just had a migraine and props to him. If I just had a migraine, I certainly wouldn't have had the uh cognitive abilities to get up and talk about some of this complicated stuff that we talk about. Uh, so hat off to, to Scotty for that one. Um, but we also go through um, a whole bunch of things, mainly talking about liver uh, stuff and a whole bunch of other things today. Um, but the next podcast, we're going to go and tackle uh, thyroid, the thyroid part of any blood test, which is a huge, huge one. So guys, as always, if you've got any questions at all, please email in to eric at brainandbodyhealth.com.au and that's Eric with a C, not a K. K Eric's a crazy. Uh, and otherwise, stay tuned, keep listening to the end uh, and enjoy. Hello. Hello, mate. It's good to see. Well, let's, let's run through. We had a, a brief chat before recording about your poor migraines. Mate, if I had a migraine... And I, and you called up and said, "Hey Eric, let's do a podcast on something, anything." I would have told you to f right off, buddy. Uh, <laughs> so I am super impressed at the at the the commitment and the willingness to go forth and teach the masses, even though you're recovering from a migraine. Uh, it's not too bad. It's just mildly sore and uh, slows the brain down a little bit. So we kind of so you'll be don't you'll be operating more around uh, my level. <laughs> oh, you're kind, <laughs> very kind, uh, mate. So, um, uh, so, like, is it a stress migraine? Um, generally speaking, uh, for me, migraines are a really interesting occurrence. So, a- as you'd probably have heard some of the theories, the major one is that it's all to do with a lack of blood flow to the brain, mm. and so. One of the big associations with migraines is actually that uh, there are these wonderful valve faults in the heart, and I happen to have a congenital mitral valve fault. So I regurgitate about 10% of the blood supply coming out of my heart into the aorta. So if I do silly things and stress myself too much, uh, such as perhaps overcooking things at training last night, you know, uh, (laughs) things don't always go to the plan that we want them to. And, uh, you know, if you look kind of nice and closely at my forehead here, you'll see that there's a third eye, which is someone's toenail hitting me from jiu-jitsu. Um, so, I, I suspect I might have been going, you know, maybe not quite as sensibly last night as I should have at training. Mate, well, uh, you know, you got to push it every now and then just to know that, hey, if, if maybe the, the toenail in the forehead is your trigger. Yeah, well, it, it was only when I got home that I actually figured out, oh, what's that? Mm. And knew that some 
people had perhaps been pushing my system a bit more than I should have been pushing my system. Actually, just because I really, really want to get into the um, the rest of understanding a blood panel that we were sort of halfway through uh, last yep. time before I rudely cut you off because a patient walked in. Um, <laughs> but uh, look, we're going to get a lot of people listening to this and I certainly do get a few uh, migraineur patients. Um, do you have a magic concoction for post-migraine recovery in terms of getting out of that? Uh, you know, cortical depolarization wave and all the other fun things that go on. Um, so, several things. I have a product called OptiMind uh, that we utilize. So, OptiMind has some really nice things in it, including herpazine and venpocetine. Uh, these things help uh, drive oxygen supply and blood supply to the brain. Hmm. They help decrease uh, oxidative stress in there. I utilize um, the, the, the joys of sulforaphane, which is a nice natural anti-inflammatory. Uh, one of the things that I w- would point out is that there's some new information just been published last week that illustrates that the migraine is not only to do with a lack of blood supply and cortical depolarization, but it's actually associated with or triggered by low levels of uh, brain stored glycogen because of low levels of sleep and poor sleep patterns. That's interesting. Yeah, it's. I'm trying to fit that into what I, I previously know to try and figure out how we're going to deal with all the patients. But all those people out there listening who are migraineurs, who are suffering with you know, terrible sleep, we need to have a look at that. We need to get mm. you into some better sleep hygiene. I've got some stuff I can give you uh, for sleep hygiene rules. And we have this wonderful product that I designed called OptiDown, which helps decrease stress and induces the production of uh, melatonin, serotonin. And so, while I wasn't trying to make this up, uh, and here's another product for you. <laughs> Mate, well, you um, can't help it. You've got the uh, it, best products on the market. I certainly noticed that after taking, um, like if I'm having a bad day, uh, that OptiDown puts me out hard and then I feel great the next day. Yeah, and that's literally what I designed it to do. I designed it to help my daughter who's uh, 15 years of age, has... ADD and uh, anxiety and her sleep's been terrible since she was three mm. and of course gets chronic uh, headache, facial migraine, etc. Since she's been using it, a lot of those symptoms have been a, a whole lot less. Now, again, the whole lot got better as I noted after the iron infusion as well. So, mm. just driving one pathway might not be the only answer as it turns out. Did you see that paper that Brandon Brock posted during the week from the Journal of Neurotrauma about the feedback loops that go on with concussion and traumatic brain injury? Um, I'll send you a copy. It was a really interesting sort of web of um, this feeds into this, this feeds into this, and I'm, I'm going to start using it from a patient communication because it's it's a, well, it, it's a big mess of a map, but um, it does <laughs> lay out everything from the metabolic consequences of what happens immediately after a concussion and then flows through to the uh. sort of social interactions and what the, how that it can have an impact. But there was one loop in there that I hadn't really thought of before and reading it, it started to make um, a bit more sense. But what they were showing was that so you get the, uh, the you know the cognitive load, uh, and so you feel the need to rest with concussion and, and sort of migraines, a similar one, um, where you, everything is exhausting. Um, so you feel the need to rest constantly throughout the day, but because you're resting throughout the day, you don't feel the need to sort of effectively sleep come end of day, which means your quality of sleep come end of day is is down, and then you don't do the um, 
Uh, what's the term for the? Is it the glymphatic um, recycling that happens? Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah, the the resting during the day made the glymphatic drainage and or less sleep at night, which was the you know you, you're resting, you're over resting. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that was an interesting loop that I hadn't. Um, and you're less likely to get blue light on your your retinas from being out in the sunlight, which means that you're not going to drive your uh, melatonin production by four o'clock in the afternoon. So you haven't got your daylights kind of active to sleep cycle working properly so mm. your brain doesn't know to trigger to turn you off later on in the day and then you poison yourself because while you're resting you're probably uh watching television mm. because with a decent concussion or a migraine you can't actually read a book because your eyes hurt and so what do you do play games on a phone or look at an ipad or watch television mm. Is, yeah. And you're getting too much of the wrong light cycle at the wrong part of the day. She was um, catching up with um, Dr. Brett Giroz. Uh, if For those who don't know, one of the best chiros down in Melbourne. Um, but uh, uh, he was just talking about the, the threat of, um, you know, we're all constantly scrolling on Facebook and the, just the pages constantly traveling up is a, a near constant signal to your brain saying hey you're uh, you're falling you're falling you're falling mm. uh and then we're surprised while we're getting these sort of bad posture and all of this tightness when our, our brains are going oh well you're falling okay i'm going to oh. contract things to prevent you from falling uh, but then you know, neurologically that sort of vertical movement of of pictures uh, is sort of real flight flight mesencephalic stress these are all big words for anyone who's listening but it basically means facebook stressing your brain out and it's a super bad idea if you've got a concussion or you're recovering from a migraine absolutely true love that uh, people uh, are being stressed by what's on facebook let alone just the action of facebook it really drives the eyes in some bad patterns and makes your neck crappy yeah well I, i've sort of got a, a habit of the moment i see a trump thing i just i have to shut it down um, because I, <laughs> it's, it's, it sets me off and i need to stop facebook right there and then otherwise triggered yeah, triggered that's my trigger um. <laughs> oh, how, how can that possibly be? That man is entertainment plus. Yeah, he's, he's literally. He's well. He's one, definitely been the most entertaining uh, American president. That's 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 fair to say. Um, yeah, but for all the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not certainly not doing healthcare a whole bunch of good. Mm, no, no, no. Anyway, mate, let's uh, not, let's jump into it. Let's get right. into the uh, now that we've done okay. the Okay. Talk so, through. where were we up to? Um, I believe uh, we certainly got to the end of um, talking about uh, hemoglobin and iron. Um, I believe we were now just starting to... Uh, we've done the liver enzymes. Liver enzymes are kind of cool. I, um, I think we had done liver enzymes. So, liver enzymes are, are probably a good place to be looking at anyway. So, you know... Okay. Well, let's, let's just... Um, one, two, three... And we're back. We figured out that we're ready to talk about liver enzymes, everyone. <laughs> so, through, mate. the first thing I want people to understand about liver enzymes, because the doctor will look at your uh, your chart and will say, oh, you've got a fatty liver, your liver enzymes are really high. And they talk about alcohol generally is the first thing. What I want people to understand about it is that we're putting in a dipstick into the bloodstream and we're taking out a, a la quarter of blood and we're measuring the internal cellular enzymes that are floating around in the bloodstream. 
Okay, so for them to be floating around in the bloodstream, it means that something's damaged your liver. So think of it in a very practical aspect. You're sitting there, I come up to you, and I beam you as hard as I can in the side of your your chest, your ribs, just on that right side, underneath the nipple line, and we bruise your liver, and it bleeds, and it spills intracellular content into the bloodstream. Then we take a measurement of that, and that measurement will have a higher amount of your enzymes, such as alkaline phosphatase, uh, GGT. Um, these are the internal cellular processes that help with detoxification, etc. So when those liver enzymes are high, there are reasons for that. And the first thing to be thinking about is, is there peroxidative damage? Is there toxic insult? Is there physical trauma? Do we lack the antioxidants? Not instantaneously. Well, I don't drink, therefore this shouldn't be a problem for me. So something is upsetting your liver at that moment in time. Mm. And the most common background cause for it and things like fatty liver disease is actually pre-diabetes and diabetic syndromes from the SAD or, or standard Australian diet. Huh. So, it's like, so if you were a reasonably healthy male who doesn't um, abuse alcohol or, or do anything too silly, like you've got that under control, but cholesterol is still quite high, uh, you could be abusing sugar. That's what you're saying? You could be abusing sugar, absolutely. Sugar's messing up my you liver. Yep, you could just have a, a genetic predisposition to make lots of cholesterol. Hmm. You could have a thyroid disorder at that moment, or you could be inflamed. So if we've got like an excess of alkaline phosphatase, which is alkaline phosphatase is a really interesting one because What's it's the, an enzyme. Um, short version, like so um, how would that appear on a test? Um, what it's the acronym or the, the letters associated with it? ALP. ALP, gotcha. Yep. And so if it's high uh, in the absence of direct physical trauma to the liver, mm. it's going to suggest that there, there could be excess bone activity and bone turnover. So th this is kind of normal in, in a young person, in a child up to like 18 years of age. Uh, not so normal if you're a, like a 70-year-old. Why is that? Is that just uh, skeletal development or what's the mechanism there? That's that's exactly it. So you should have high bone turnover at that moment if you're a 15-year-old. You should be making more bone as you're growing and wanting to harden it, etc. There's a great so, joke there about, uh, you know, teenage 15-year-old boys making lots of bones, but um, I won't say it because that's too classy. How, uh, <laughs> and if they're not, that could mean that they need more protein. Yeah. Uh, yeah okay, go on. Sorry. Yeah. I couldn't help it. Okay. No, no. Fair enough. So- the alkaline phosphatase, if, if we're getting this, uh, this high level, we might actually need more calcium, protein, or boron. So those are the areas to be looking for if we're seeing an actual problem with an excessive alkaline phosphatase. If the GGT, uh, which is a glutathione um, glutaminase transferase enzyme, uh, is is out of range. Uh, it can be either too high or too low. Mm. So the optimal range for the GGT is 20 to 45. Now, if it's too low, you might have a lack of B6 in your diet or you're wasting it somehow. And if it's, again, too high, again, think about that uh, 
peroxidation going on. So again, the, the oxidative stress is hitting you. You're not detoxing particularly effectively. And this is where we might need to be putting in a whole bunch more of those um, antioxidant enzyme nutrients, sulforaphane, mm. milk thistle, uh, glutathione prerequisites, including N-acetylcysteine, maybe some glycine, maybe some glutamine, because that helps make glutathione, those three put together. Mm. Uh, looking at the toxic load in your diet, have you been exposed to heavy metals or- And the, the long-term uh, consequence of high, um, is it GGT, GCT? E- GGT. But yeah, so the long-term consequence of that, how would that play out on like the rest of your liver panel? Is that where you'd start to say, hey, you've got fatty liver, but it's purely because you've got high GGT for far too long? Uh, ultimately, how that sort of plays out, because there's, there's four major detox pathways in the liver, but there's a bunch of different actual detoxification enzymes in the background that make those major pathways work. But we've got methylation, glycination, glutathionation, uh, and sulfuration going on. Mm. So if you don't have enough cruciferous vegetables or if you don't have enough uh, glycine or not enough methylation from poor levels of B12, one of the other pathways is going to try and take up the slack and then that causes an upregulation of certain of these enzymes and you can track that with certain testing. So we can actually run what's called a functional liver detoxification profile rather than just the liver panel. That was my next question. On, is, uh, there, is there a yeah. test that looks at those four pathways? That's because of fu- functional liver fu- uh, level test? Detoxification. Okay. Yeah, functional liver detoxification test. So, again, what we do is we give the person uh, several different chemicals, including caffeine, including uh, aspirin and paracetamol, mm. and then we measure the amount of output in the pee several hours later. And, and is this a test that's done through like someone like yourself who's into natural medicine, or does a GP know enough <laughs> about that that they'll be able to order uh, some GPs will absolutely know more about this. Integrative GPs will definitely do these sorts of testing. I'd do this sort of testing. Naturopaths might. Okay. So, so it's not just the it, um, GP only kind of gig? No, it's not. Cool. So lots of different people can actually help run this test. The test itself has some limitations because it certainly, in my opinion, what we know is that the end result of that says, yes, you can or cannot process caffeine. Yes or no, you can process paracetamol. So mm. we're extrapolating the results to say, well, the paracetamol is processed by this class of enzyme, if you're doing that poorly, it probably means other chemicals in that class are also being processed poorly because you don't have enough building blocks to run the pathway. Mm, that's interesting. Or, so, so I'd imagine something like that it would have a huge impact on people who are sort of um, relying on, uh, you know, paracetamol, aspirin, um, yeah, Panadol, all that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Pain. Yeah. Well, what, what, it, it, how it's would a, that look symptomatically for someone who was taking Panadol, Paracetamol for headaches or whatever, and they've got a, a poor um, uh, sort of metabolic capacity for that? Uh, well, lots of really bad ways. One of them might be that you actually are getting crown-type liver toxic headaches. So there's ah, a particular okay. type yeah, of gotcha. headache that, that's right at the top of the head that's very... Um, 
prone from from liver detoxification issues. Now, mm. the next thing that you got to keep in mind is that paracetamol is not the the joyous candy that we're made out to believe it is, and it's actually one of the most interesting and potentially dangerous in the wrong metabolisms drug that we come across. It's the number one cause of hospital-acquired liver failure. Hmm. So, what it does is it soaks up all your glutathione because it requires a massive level of glutathionation to actually de detoxify it. Now, if you get B3 deficient and, and you don't have enough niacin because perhaps you don't have enough tryptophan in your diet, you can't actually uh, activate your glutathione pathway and you become highly toxic and you turn yellow and you can die. And this is surprisingly quite a common occurrence and there's like zero warnings of these things so a house episode about that at some stage <laughs> there, there was actually it was quite entertaining but it's still like everyone kind of go oh well that was just tv you know no it's, it's not going to happen in real life but there's black box warnings on these things and especially when you consider the fact that paracetamol and the latest uh kind of, uh, it was at the Cochrane Review, they basically pointed out that it's got no better uh, effect than uh, placebo does. And mm, we're giving actually. it out for everything. Yeah, this, this stuff does not work well, and it actually has a whole bunch of risk. However, everyone direct to consumer marketing is like, oh, this stuff's fine. Take as much as you want. The stuff that really drives me mad is is you see all these wonderful adverts for, you know, new mums. Oh, if you're having a bad day with your kid, drug them, you know. I the, get, saw that and, yeah, I oh, saw red. Um, it just... It's just wrong. If there's a problem with the child, if they've got headaches, fevers, or otherwise, maybe you should investigate why there's a problem and determine with some proper advice from someone who's done an exam that that's the right thing. Because if your child's got some genetic inadequacies that they can't actually detoxify paracetamol effectively, you risk killing a child. Now, well, I, I find as soon as my kid's got a sort of headache uh, or is crying and that sort of thing, um, one thing that I found works really well is you just pick them up and shake them. And, and <laughs> no, everyone, I'm joking. Please don't shake your baby. Uh, I, I, I did not promote. Even I went. <laughs> I saw your face. All right. Um, yeah. Do not shake your baby. I do not promote the shaking of babies over, uh, over, over paracetamol. But no. You just imagine no. someone taking a snippet of that and getting me in trouble. That oh, be, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So <laughs> go on, mate. Go, yeah, pick, yeah. So I, I saw that. Um, it was a Panadol ad, I think, that did it most recently. Pissed me right Absolutely, off. but uh, the, all the all the companies that are marketing that sort of stuff are doing it. And the worst stuff is is that recently the the governments have very adroitly or non adroitly taken the stronger. Uh, medications for pain off the market from direct to consumer. And so the, the companies that sell other paracetamol and neurofin, uh, you know, ibuprofen type products are modifying their product range to actually make it seem that it's more uh, pain-killing than perhaps it really is. Uh, we've made it stronger. It lasts longer. It still, in all the reviews, has no greater effect than placebo. So, 
what we're doing, unfortunately, is putting things in that are known to cause ulceration of the gut, known to cause liver failure, and left out there with no warning labels to say, hey, by the way, this stuff may not actually do you any good, and it's shown to not actually do any good for your pain ultimately anyway. Mm. Lose, lose. So, well, in my opinion, but, you know, the only things that are actually shown to be particularly useful uh, uh, are generally the things like physio, chiropractic, you know, massage therapies, mm. cognitive behavior. Those are the things that we know actually have effects on, on our pain pathways. We know that if we get our patients moving again, if we get them breathing effectively, if we change their lifestyle, we look at their, their spinal health, their posture, their habits, how they sleep, uh, get rid of toxic influences in their life, generally pain does better. There's a reason, a mechanism behind all these things. Drugging it doesn't necessarily make the right impact. But, yeah. That's a better point. I <laughs> mentioned the, the um, from your yeah, pain control, you, you do get people who are hung up. Oh, no, chiropractic is the way. It's the only way. Or physio is the, physio is the only Everything works. You've got to do everything in combination. You can't just approach pain from a one-dimensional point of view. That's just silly. Absolutely, because you're only using it as a Band-Aid in which case, oh, my pain's come back. I'll go back to the Cairo. I'll go back to the yeah, physio. Nice Here's my to get stuck into for repeat business yeah. for the rest of your life, isn't it? Yeah, that does not work. That is not where we want to go. That's ex- You could have just taken painkillers. Mm. <laughs> they don't work, but, you know, you're still stuck in your loop. Yeah. Well, it saves, saves a lot of time. But, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, getting so, back to the, yeah, the but, functional liver. To, um, mate, how much does that one cost? <laughs> Uh, generally speaking, it's about two hundred dollars to run. Yeah. Um, it may have changed That's fractionally. Okay. Different different companies run it. Mm. It's useful. It's not one of the highest things I do. Again, I'd probably use uh, in most people's cases the the DNA testing, the epigenetics, looking for what's phase one and phase two liver pathways uh, and detox pathways actually doing. Uh, and with, because all of those uh, detox enzymes are generally cytochromes that uh, requiring of iron, we go back to our previous conversations as to the importance of making sure the patient is replete because it doesn't really matter how clever your um, functional liver detoxification test is. If we've missed a crucial fact like, well, I'm highly deficient in B12 or I'm highly deficient in uh, iron or I'm a celiac so I can't absorb iron properly, how good your detox going to be? Mm. Yeah, good point. Bad. So, there's no point doing the fancy test if you've missed the basics. Mm. Mm. Okay. So, so the other te- uh, enzyme that we kind of like to have a look at is ALT. And again, uh, if it's a high level, the optimal is 15 to 30. High level, we're looking at direct damage to those um, hepatocytes, so the liver cells. Again, toxic insult, alcohol, viruses, Fatty liver disease. Yep. Uh, Again, low levels. Check for your B1. Check for B6. Look at these levels, especially if the patient also has a low level of GGT. Mm. So, the the theme of the um, liver enzyme seems to be if it's too low, there's some form of nutritional deficit of a B vitamin or protein or something of that ilk. And if it's too high, something that's pissing your liver off being at um, inflammatory, toxic load... Um, slash yeah. um, one of the other detox pathways ain't doing its job. 
Correct. And definitely we're going to see a lot more coming out about viruses and, and uh, infectious insults. The current um, publishings coming out of places like Harvard, uh, like Epstein Barr, which I've just received this week, uh, a Harvard paper got published showing that Epstein Barr is causing seven different diseases, including uh, different forms of cancer, Parkinson's oh, wow. disease, etc. So huh. once I get a bit more of a handle, we're going to have a big talk about that because the direction that we're going to be looking at is these, uh, what we consider low-grade childhood diseases, mononucleosis, uh, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr. Epstein-Barr is, is a herp. Uh, a herpes virus, uh, herpes 6, I think it is. And these things that we get as childhood infections that we kind of go, oh, yeah, I had that when I was 16. It was all fine, you know. It leads on to chronic uh, fatigue syndromes, fibromyalgia, mm. uh, cancers. It leads on to, uh, as I say, Parkinson's and neurological disorders. These are the things that, are, as practitioners, all of us are going to be facing because this is the real information coming out about these autoimmune conditions that are actually lying dormant, waiting to explode in all of us. So mm. if you've had these things, people, you've got to consider getting yourself checked. They may be driving inflammation, causing your problems. And what's the... Uh, is the therapy, so let's say I've got Epstein-Barr, is there a um, different therapeutic regime we'd look at to flush out my... Uh, is it living? Is it like a vagal nerve issue, or is it more just get stuck in the lymphatic system and then stress reactivates it? And what, what's the... Uh, or is it different, well, different depending on the virus? Different depending on the virus, different depending on the person, different depending on where it's stuck in their body. Uh, it's a nice so, little complicated mess then. Yeah, there's never any nice simple stuff. So mm. if we think about chickenpox, for instance, you get that as, as, as I did. I was about eight when I got it. And what tends to occur is you get into your early 50s and it comes back out to haunt you because your stress levels went up and your resources went down. And the things that help kept you in order, such as testosterone and or estrogen, which are uh, immune boosting and repair boosting have now started to wane. Mm. So what occurs is you can no longer keep your immune system suppressed or, or keep your immune system rather suppressing the infection and the stress level comes out and bang, you're away and you get these nasty herpetic lesions coming around the ribs or down your arm or mm. wherever mm. it might be. And so those signs are then associated with a whole bunch of neurodegenerative diseases. Mm, mate, that's going to be fun. Yeah, send me that paper so we can both chat about it. Cool. Oh, yeah, I've got to get some uh, solid answers because, of course, the first thing that's going to occur is we make a statement about it. Someone says, "Yeah, but what am I going to do about it?" And I'm like, "Ah." Yes. So <laughs> that was my next question. Yeah, like, uh, yeah. What's the effective antiviral? But. Uh, uh- uh, well, it's not so much that. So, where we're going to go, and I have just ordered, is I have a new laser coming, which is a uh, a violet laser. And so, what we know is that the violet lasers work uh, in a lower frequency range, and that frequency range is uh, going to be killing off, you know, certain types of infections, like... It's ultraviolet, as we know, is the right treatment for certain types of bacteria yeah. and and mold, etc. So what we're going to do is is standardize it and put it into a violet laser and actually treat the tissue to decrease the infections and or the inflammation caused by it. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, is so, there an absorption issue? Like how deep can that 
um, penetrate? Is there because I know with like the standard red light lasers, some wavelengths go quite deep, but it doesn't matter how strong you make the laser, some wavelengths are just not going to get that deep into your tissue. Yeah, there's there's a definite effect of that. So again, I think about the maximum we're seeing is kind of uh, three centimeters, mm. um, and it depends on which frequency. But it's somewhere between five mil and about thirty mil. Now, again, say you were treating for an infection over the gut, a lot of empty space. All you've got to do is get through the top layers, the muscle and fat, etc., and then you're into the the empty gas space of the the abdomen. And so, I don't think that we're going to have such a big issue at that moment in time because mm. it transfers through air really effectively. Interesting. And then you've got the fun ones where we're releasing stem cells by irradiating the the tibia. Yeah, I just read that. That was um, that was pretty cool. Hey. Yeah, so that's going to be another really interesting place for us to start looking because mm. in these people with neurological infections uh, or neurological damage post things like herpetic infection, we need to be doing something that will actually drive tissue healing to get their brain back in order. Now, so that's a combo we may not red labor on the tibia, a red laser on the tibia and then ultraviolet over the uh, – let's, let's get the rainbow happening. That's awesome. Yep. That's pretty much it. And again, it's shown to be effective in literature. Uh, have I done enough of it to be to be comfortable? No, but we're going to have to start looking at this somewhere because, you know, there's not enough actual good therapies um, going on towards uh, knocking out these infections. Yeah, unfortunately, with everything I've read into laser therapy, it doesn't sound like there's, um, I think there's a couple of researchers that have got a good idea, but as far as sort of clinical applications, it seems like it's a bit of the wild, wild west. <laughs> That's a very good way of putting it. Um, so, other things that we need to be looking at, uh, obviously, patients are going to come in complaining about their, their lipids, their mm. um, cholesterol levels are going to be on these blood panels. And so, you've really got to be very much aware of uh, things like high triglycerides. So, um, we definitely don't want the triglyceride to actually come above two. My preference is actually between about 0.7 and 1.1. Uh, the higher the triglyceride in invariably. Now, again, some people have a genetic predisposition to make more triglycerides, so mm. they're more efficient at it no matter what. But if these things are up, what we tend to find is that the patient will have a high carbohydrate, high sugar intake. They're generally in that early insulin resistance sort of pathway. Uh, they may be lacking in essential fatty acids or fiber in their diet, which kind of goes with the idea of too much, too many carbs, not enough fiber. Mm -hmm. So not enough vegetables, too much processed food. They may need chromium, vanadium, or of course, antioxidants, AECE, uh, et cetera going on. So, two higher triglycerides. Triglycerides are transport molecules for the energy we consume, both fats and sugars. So, the, the significant amount of fats, apart from omega-3, uh, that goes in needs to be transported around the body. And so, they get turned into a triglyceride, which is a glycerol molecule with three uh, long-chain fatty acids hanging off it. Mm -hmm. Then those things then get stuck to a protein boat with what's actually a, uh, a cholesterol molecule stuck to it. Mm -hmm. So, when, when we look at the uh, lipid profile and we're talking about cholesterol, we're not actually talking about cholesterol per se. What we're talking about is called lipoproteins. So, you have 
high-density lipoprotein, low-density lipoprotein, and very low-density lipoprotein. So again, keep in mind, these are blobs of protein, mm. which is a chunk of protein made from amino acids with a sale of uh, cholesterol poked in it. And that cholesterol helps attract the triglycerides to actually bind to it because protein and, and fat don't really go together all that wonderfully well. Mm. So the body in its infinite brilliance manufactures these, these molecules. And the lower the density of protein in relationship to, um, to cholesterol, so to speak, or to the triglycerides, the more energy availability. So these things are made in the liver and then they're transported to the muscles or to the tissue to be burned in the furnaces for energy. So how the cycle works is apart from genetic predisposition, some people are genetically more predisposed to make HDL, some people are genetically predisposed to make LDL. But in general, they all start as very low-density lipoproteins. You spit them out of the liver, send it to the muscle. The muscle, if it's uh, not insulin-resistant and doing work and has all the pathways open, will suck all those cholesterol, uh, sorry, triglyceride molecules out and spit out an HDL molecule, which means that the density of fat to protein is is very high. So, or rather, the density of protein to fat, I should say, is very high. So it's got very low levels of, of triglyceride or energy left on it, and that gets recycled back to the liver. Mm. Then it gets filled up again and sent back on its merry cycle. Mm-hmm. If the person has an issue with uh, insulin resistance or the the pathways for absorbing the the triglycerides to burn are very poor, not open, not enough chromium, vanadium, or some other factor, what tends to occur, you know, the basic idea is that they have too much energy going in for the amount of output and burning they do, they spit out LDL. And LDL is that it's still got a big chunk of energy left stuck to that protein Mm, cholesterol blob, and that needs to be sent around the cycle again to be put through into the furnace to absorb it off. Now, the more times that occurs, the more chance that uh, that cholesterol protein blob has to become oxidized. Mm. Now, everyone talks about in the medical industry, you know, good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And technically, that's a a misstatement or an untruth. Now, what bad cholesterol basically is, is any cholesterol molecule that has been oxidized. Because as soon as it's oxidized, we start off these free radical oxidative stress cascades. And that's where the damage actually occurs. Because Mm. triglycerides and fatty acids are actually quite volatile compounds, If it's spending too long not being burnt and sitting in the circulation, it has the capacity to be acted upon by a free radical and will happily um, kind of have its molecules ripped off it, allowing the oxidative stress pathway to continue on. And we just don't want that because that's where all the damage occurs. So our goal is really, you know, let's get people on a, a lower energy input diet to the largest degree, certainly compared to what most Mm. people are are doing. Uh, Let's get more uh, soluble fiber 
insoluble fiber. Let's get stuff to grow your bacteria to work nicely. Let's put in your vitamins and minerals that help you process these things. Think about your protein because you need those amino acids to actually run the enzymes, make the lipoproteins in the first place. But if everyone's just like, oh, here's a drug to lower your, uh, your cholesterol, and they're not really thinking about it in the right way because as soon as you lower your cholesterol, you're actually lowering the true cholesterol molecule, which is the precursor to mm. so many of our goodies. You know, you can't make coenzyme Q10 without cholesterol. If you can't make coenzyme Q10, your risk of having heart failure goes up through the roof. Coenzyme Q10 is essential in every mitochondria to actually produce energy. So if you blockade coenzyme Q10 production by using a statin, you're going to limit your production of energy. That's why people become tired and sore on the drugs. And they go, oh, that's okay. We've lowered your cholesterol. You're good. You're not going to die. Actually, that's not necessarily true. Artificially lowering cholesterol really doesn't actually help your end mortality particularly. Cholesterol is this wonderful U-shaped curve. If it gets too high, you've got problems. If it gets below four, you've got problems. Your mortality risk goes up again. Mm. So yeah, great everyone word, yeah. needs to be a bit, bit more careful with this stuff. Now, you know, there are other ways of actually lowering cholesterol. Again, we know that high doses of um, niacin or vitamin B3 and vitamin C is particularly useful. High levels of fiber is particularly useful. Getting rid of your insulin resistance, particularly useful. Mm. Measure what your testosterone's like because low testosterone leads to high cholesterol. Look at your thyroid function. Poor functioning thyroid equals high cholesterol. There are so many other factors and all we do is go, oh, I see a problem. I have a solution. Smunch. Did it help mm. your system? No, but your cholesterol's lower. We've got to think a bit more humanistic or whole person. Yeah, We've got to not, kind not of so uh, cookie cutter, a little bit more complicated than it, getting well, that cholesterol down. Yeah, you know, let's face it. If the person's cholesterol and triglycerides are up because all they do is eat kind of pizza and burgers and fried chicken and beer and coke, you know maybe and they're not willing to change maybe the statin's the right way forward mm. you know and, and in some people like part of the reason that we do those dna tests uh in it there are people who are just predisposed regardless of how good their diet is to make more cholesterol so what occurs is with those people it'll actually show up that they're a positive candidate for a statin and all you do is you make sure that you measure and look at their, their B3 and their ubiquinol and supplement those things and lower the cholesterol because there is a danger in getting it up like 14. Mm. If you do get it too high, you will get plaquing in the arteries and risk having a, a cardiac um, problem. But they're not the main group of people. Now, I'm certain that there's people in, in uh, medicine out there who will disparage what I'm saying, but this is what the literature actually shows. Now, again, it depends on how you ask the question. If we ask the question, does statins lower cholesterol? The answer is categorically yes. If we ask the question, does lowering cholesterol with statins actually enhance human health and well-being? We might find a very different answer. Mm. And notwithstanding that, there is some, some good evidence that is being constantly disparaged by the purveyors of some of our medications to say that 
too high a use of statins is actually associated with dementia risk. Well, it starts to become a bit... Uh... Well, it's, it's pretty controversial still because when that first came out, everyone just stopped wanting to take cholesterol medication because everyone is happy to replace a heart, but you can't replace a brain. Mm. And I can't say I blame them. Um, now, you know, some people say that there's some, some gray areas in that research. I think we should be looking at that particular research with big eyes and making sure that it, it, it is right or wrong because, you know, statins are in the top five medications given out worldwide. Are they really? And huh. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, this, this stuff goes out like candy. Um, now, again, this is prescribed medications. This doesn't even include things like Panadol. Yeah, okay. I didn't okay. think of that. Yeah. So, huh. the number one uh, most prescribed when I last looked was actually uh, antacid. So, things like um, omeprazole or PPIs, proton pump inhibitors. And so, they've got some side effects, but they do work if you're getting massive levels of inflammatory infiltration in your gut to stop the ulcers. Um, anyway, <laughs> we got a little sidetracked there again. <laughs> I, 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 just, I love listening to it, especially when you get rolled up. It's uh, oh. it's, it's a uh, yeah, it's it's always fun listening to you. Uh, but yeah, we got this. We yeah. got the statin. It's just one of those things, though. Really, when you uh, you have to ask people to use their brain again, uh, it, there's going to be resistance because uh, when you oh. look at a blood test and go, oh, high cholesterol. Let's fix that with this. You mean I have to think of fifty other things? Nah. Let's just go with statins again. That, that all sounds too difficult. I've got, you know, five minutes to look after this patient and then I've got the next one that I need to look at. That's it. So, further, what we can do is we can actually run some fractions on, on their blood panels. So, again, we can run a, an LPA. Uh, and so, again, if that's elevated, these people do have an increased cardiovascular disease risk mm. and they may respond to the niacin therapy. Okay? Okay. If, interesting. We can then also run uh, what's called an APOE phenotype. And so, APOE is the most uh, researched uh, genetic marker towards uh, both uh, coronary artery disease as well as Alzheimer's dementia. And so, there's uh, three different phenotypes, APOE 2, E3, and E4. And you get one from mum and one from dad. And you kind of want to be an E33, preferably. Are they the genotypes that were associated with um, concussion risk as well? I think uh, I'm not sure. I haven't seen that one specifically. Um, I'll double check but, and get back to you for next week. Yeah, cool. Um, so, if we, you're an E4, this particular allele is massively increased cardiovascular disease risk. It is uh, responsive to a low-fat diet. Uh, and if... if you leave it alone and, and don't do anything positive for yourself, your brain is really likely to go pop as well. Mm. Uh, APOE by itself, again, responds to low-fat diet, but they may develop uh, low HDL cholesterol and an elevated uh, high triglyceride on a high-carbohydrate diet. The E2 doesn't respond to low-fat diets at all and will usually actually get worse Mm. So, this is why we run that DNA test to actually look at it. Now, you can have an APOE24, an E34, E33. Mm. And so, when we look at these things, I've never seen an E23. 
I don't know why, um, but I just haven't. <laughs> uh, so E3, I think, is E33 is about 70% of all the people out there mm. and then uh, kind of falling into different um, patterns from there. And you just really need to be very aware of these things and, and modify your diet otherwise because they have very solid evidence for uh, basically smunching you if you don't do it right. Well, yeah, very much. So you need to be aware of your genetics so that you can eat appropriate for your genetics because if you're not, oh. you're not going to last very long. No, that's exactly I it. Think that, so that was, uh, yeah, when we did my genetic panel, I was like, ah, okay, you got some holes. Um, let's, <laughs> let's change some lifestyle factors, shall we? That's exactly it. Mm. So, from there, what we get to that also affects cholesterol and a whole lot of other um, metabolism function is your thyroid tests. Mm. I was wondering when we were going to talk through <laughs> the magic meat. I feel like we could talk for hours just on T3 alone. Uh, uh, it's pretty much true. And, and it's a really complicated thing, especially in this let's particular do the country. Five minute version before the patients get yep. in. And then we'll, well, I think, I think thyroid is a big enough entity that we should probably yep. do an entire podcast oh. on thyroids. I think that's a great idea. So the very basic thing that everyone needs to know is generally speaking in Australia, uh, we, we go into the doctor, they want to run a thyroid t- test on you. They're going to do a TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone test. Now, in of itself, this is a, uh, a driver from the brain to tell the thyroid to do its job. Theoretically, a normal range is about two. Okay. So that's the sweet spot mm-hmm. and it can go either up or down. If it's too high, so above four is is the generally recognized appropriate cutoff, mm-hmm. it means that your brain is screaming at your thyroid to do more. Hmm. Okay? So, this means that you are hypoactive or low thyroid. Okay? If it's below about 0.7, and this will depend on which lab and where, they've got some different cutoff ranges and there's some issues, it means that you have a hyperactive thyroid and your your brain is kind of going, calm down, magic kitten, just don't do anything uh, because it's trying to slow down the production of thyroid hormones. Now, the issue is, is that the sensitivity of the equipment to be able to test much lower than about uh, 0.5, 0.3 is actually really poor. Mm, okay. So, it's really hard to actually get outside the bottom end of that range. Is that in all tests or just the generic one that you get with the blood panel? Um, well, this is pretty much because the generic test done in the in the blood panel for a thyroid is the one that's used as a gold standard pretty much anywhere. Oh, right. Now, okay. there are some very specific labs that only specialize in thyroid hormone and hormones themselves, and they've probably got some more sensitive equipment. But you go to any of the major, um, you know, pathology labs, Gribbles or, or up here, Sullivan Nicolades, you know, it, it, they're all pretty much the same. They've all got roughly the same range. Internationally, it's roughly the same range. And if you fall within that kind of 0.5 to, to 4 range, which is pretty big, mm. you're going to be considered normal. And then the government, mm. Medicare, will not pay for any further testing. Mm. 
regardless of how dry your skin, how much loss of the outer third of your eyebrow, how overweight you are, how tired you are, how headachey, how much you forget what room you, you're like you go into a room and you kind of go, oh, what the hell did I come in here for? So you go out of the room and retrace your steps and go, that's right, I was looking for my keys. Where did I put my keys again? So these are all signs and symptoms of hypothyroidism. Mm. Now, the really interesting thing is there's also autoimmune hypothyroid. So you could have a thing called Hashimoto's, which is your immune system attacking your thyroid and you still won't show up outside the normal range. My wife has uh, hmm. Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Her TSH was perfect on every test. It was two every time. We did five tests before I just paid for the test to be done, found that she had antibodies, and we started getting some decent help for her. Hmm. So That's frustrating. Yeah. Well, it is. And this is kind of part of the problem. We have a situation where, where doctors will be doing the right thing, but they're a bit um, a bit hamstrung by some of the Medicare rulings. Mm. And you don't want to go against the Medicare rulings because if you show up on their, their flagging, they'll come and investigate you and the judge you're mm, an executioner. Shut, shut you down. Absolutely. I wouldn't want to be in a medical doctor's position in this country oh, God, no. because it's a really hard place to be mm. if you do something that gets your livelihood pulled from you. Mm. So, yeah, so that that's your basic ideas. Uh, so mm. from there, you measure T4 and T3, and we'd want to look at some antibodies. But, uh, you know, I'll probably leave those ones alone for the second in time because yeah, it's probably another Yeah, I'd love to talk thyroid with you um, in, in a lot greater depth. Um, yeah. But I think we, we certainly belted uh, liver out of the park today. That was that was Absolutely. Good. So, I always uh, sort of, you know, like, what the hell? I know people, you know, cholesterol, high cholesterol, there's a, you know, good cholesterol, bad cholesterol, good, bad cholesterol, bad, good cholesterol. They're like, ah, oh, jeez, oh, my brain just melts. No, but now that makes a lot of sense. It's oxidation. And if you keep in mind that it's, the, it's a protein. Hmm. So, if you have a person who's malnourished for protein, how do you think their system's going to be? Hmm. They're going to be plaquing because they've got nothing to transport hmm. triglycerides around. That's, they just yeah, smear. Okay. So, now, what, one of the things that I forgot to mention about fats, trans fats, margarine, pastry margarine, the stuff we now cook with that's so good for us because it's low cholesterol. The, um, so, vegetable oil? Yeah, vegetable oils. Well, it's the solid stuff, the stuff that you get um, that's in in the the flora active packets, etc. So, supposedly, we've got um, some rulings that say that we we are reducing our trans fats from foods, okay? And, And we're meant to have gotten rid of it. But this stuff's been in our environment for like the last 40 years. So, what you've got to think about there is that that food group is solid at room temperature, Okay, so a trans fat versus a cis fat. Cis fats uh, look kind of like a stackable chair. Okay, so they have both the, the, the molecules that we're interested in on the same side and they have a, uh, a polar resonance that attracts them together and gives it their structural integrity. Mm-hmm. Now, these things become liquid at body temperatures. So they mm. become mobile in your um, 
your, your uh, lipid bilayers so that they move mm. and they interact appropriately because your cells are made of these lipid bilayers that flex and move around in the three-dimensional moving objects. That's how they do all their work. All the, the information that goes on in our cells actually occurs on these lipid bilayers. Mm. Now, trans fat has the, the interesting polar molecules on the opposite side to one another. So they kind of resemble like a zigzag. Mm. Now, the body can't tell the difference between a trans and a cis fat. Right. Okay, so you will try and incorporate that into your cell, into the lipid bilayer, and it makes it fragile. Huh. And remember, they are solid at room temperature. They are solid at 37 degrees, which is body temperature. They're solid at 40 degrees. So you make these fragile, clumpy blood-like cells that plaque and smear because they don't move properly. Mm. And they stop the opening of the the, the porphyrins and the, the channels and create channelopathies because the mechanism of the proteins deforming sure. and changing shape can't open to take nutrients in and out and you basically explode your cells. So trans fats, really, no one's been kind of doing it the justice because they don't explain to anyone what it actually is. Oh, trans fats are bad. Yeah, okay, why? Mm. Oh, well, they are. Well, they're bad because they don't move properly in our bodies. Mm. Our bodies are entirely flexible, mobile things, and we have to be able to exchange nutrients effectively from inside to outside the cell. If you can't do that, things just go wrong. And then you start clogging places up and forming these um, cluster bombs in your arteries waiting for something to go bang. Yeah, that's interesting. And so- all the people out there, you know, you're going to get, and, and I'm going to generalize here, and no offense to anyone who, who is in these professions who doesn't do this, but, like, y- you get the people who are, like, tradies who are after a cheap pie at the servo, you know, and, and they grab the, the $2 pie as part of their, I watched a guy who was, uh, you know, driving a truck, jumps out at the servo while I'm getting gas, gets his, his steak and cheese pie, a Snickers bar, and a Coke. And that was his $5 meal at 8 o'clock in the morning. Mm. Okay. So, to make a $2 pie, you cannot use high-quality pastry. No offense to whoever does it. They'll all dispute this. Mm. But you're going to be using the cheapest component for the best flavor you possibly can. Fat tastes good. It doesn't taste significantly different in a pie between being really high-quality fat to Mm. being pastry margarine. It just has to have a good binding flexibility coefficient. So we still have hydrogenated oils which create the pastry margarine which contain some Mm. trans fats. So when you eat those low-quality food groups, you are getting trans fats into you, and this is putting you at risk always because how are you going to get that thing out of you? You don't have an enzyme to break it down and digest it. Yeah, because your body doesn't recognize it. No. Hmm. You're bugging. So, that's just so you th- there's my filter it out of your system for long enough for the cellular turnover to either, well, for the cell to either die and get replenished or for you just naturally repair the um, cell membrane? It basically. Hmm. You've got to replace everything and get rid of it. Wait, let's... Uh Let's let's wrap up. That was um, no worries. I like that. We had a good old rant about a couple of things. 
Uh, <laughs> we, we uh, oh, mate, name dropped a few names. That was, it was good. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed that one. Yeah. Awesome. Talked about statin conspiracies. We just like it. <laughs> it's not a conspiracy no, it's not. if it's true. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, mate, uh, looking, I'm really looking forward to it. So, next time, uh, yep. thyroids. Let's let's talk thyroids, which is going to be, oh, mate, we could do, we, we, we could do six bloody episodes in a row just on thyroid, I think. Uh, it's a big one. That'd be awesome. Nice one. Guys, I hope you're taking notes and learn a lot about how your liver works and all of the things involved with cholesterol because we, yeah, we got it. Uh, look, if you've got any questions or you want to get in contact with Scotty, um, you can email Wong T-O-O-W-O-N-G at optimallife.com.au or you can give them a buzz on 07-3371-0222. Uh, if you want to get in contact with me in Sydney, uh, you can find me on eric at brainandbodyhealth.com.au, send an email. Otherwise, give us a call on 029-817-6611. Guys, thanks for listening as always, and stay tuned for the next one where we go through thyroids. Thyroids.